0: houses built on old graveyards. Vengeful spirits haunting the homeowners. Mysterious and sudden deaths. It sounds like the plotline of a horror movie, but to the residents of an affluent Texas suburb, it was all too real. Killing. Missing. Hidden. A podcast about. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the KMH Podcast. I am Brad, as always, and today we're going to do something a little different. No murders, no missing folks. We're going to enjoy a classic ghost story involving the Black Hope Cemetery. Not many folks have heard of this one, which is why I wanted to cover it. I've tried my best to put together a coherent tale because there's not a lot of sources to go off of. Now, before we get into it, I need to offer a disclaimer based on some feedback I've received, and hence the revised episode. I want to let everybody know that I am Christian, and I understand the Bible's position on spiritism. I am by no means advocating that people start conducting seances or reaching out for ghosts or anything crazy like that. Because of my beliefs, I would never knowingly cover any story that I believe to be. In the early 1980s, Houston was a booming city. New housing developments were popping up all over the area. One of these developments was called Newport Subdivision, located just outside of Houston in what's known as Crosby, Texas. It was exactly the sort of charming, picturesque little oasis of a neighborhood one would expect for these wealthy millionaires moving down to Houston. One of the first residents of this little slice of heaven were Sam and Junith Haney, who purchased what they described as their dream home in 1982. For a year, they enjoyed the house they intended to reside in for a long, long time. In 1983, they decided to add a swimming pool to their dream home. Shortly after construction began, however, the Haney's received a knock at the door. They didn't recognize the visitor, an elderly black man who didn't seem to be part of the mayonnaise white neighborhood they lived in. The man identified himself as Jasper Norton and warned the Haney's they needed to stop construction of their pool immediately. Why? Because their house was built on top of a graveyard. So let's take a moment to step back in time. This area, that would later be known as Crosby, was founded by a Humphrey Jackson in 1823 who named the settlement Lick Skillet. This has nothing to do with our tale, but how can you not enjoy sharing a town name like Lick-Skillet? It is about as southern as it comes. The land eventually became part of a plantation owned by the McKinney family, and this part is actually important to our story. When slavery ended, the McKinney family actually gave some of their land to their now former slaves to help them establish a community, and the community of Black Hope was founded. In this community, the newly freed slaves built a church, a school, many houses, and even a little graveyard. The community continued for several decades until a fire broke out and destroyed most of what they had built. Rather than rebuild, the survivors moved to nearby Barrett Station. Yet the graveyard continued to be used. Reportedly, the last burial occurred in 1939. As with most African-American graveyards at that time, the local government did not acknowledge its existence or attempt to preserve it in any way. The McKinney's descendants held on to the remainder of the land until a developer drove up with a truckload of money in order to capitalize on the housing boom, and they sold now, there's a big dispute about whether or not the developers knew of the existence of the graveyard. The developers say this was never disclosed in the documents, the sales documents. It's certainly not recorded in any recognized government documents. But others tell a story where the developers dramatically bulldoze over of wooden crosses and other items to indicate where the cemetery was. Now, the entirety of the graveyard was located within section eight of this development. So let's jump back to the 80s. Jasper Norton, the elderly visitor, claimed to know for certain the Haney's house was located on the graveyard because he was the last caretaker of the graveyard. Indeed, he went so far as to go into the Haney's backyard and pointed at two spots in the ground, insisting that if the Haney's would Dig there, bodies would be found. Sam Haney chalked this up to a sick joke and didn't believe a development as nice as Newport would be built over a graveyard, but he decided to confirm Jasper's story was a load of dung and grabbed either a shovel or a bat depending on which story you read. After only a few minutes of digging, Sam struck something. He carefully continued digging, and Judith even assisted in clearing off some of the dirt when they realized what Sam had found, a coffin. Sam dug in the second spot Jasper had pointed to, and sure enough, a second coffin was found. Sam immediately called the local authorities. The coroner and the sheriff responded, They confirmed that the coffins each contained a dead body, but the bones were so brittle they would turn to dust when handled. Each body was wearing, for lack of a better term, a wedding ring. And for reasons unknown, the coroner gave these rings to Sam. Judith was immensely uncomfortable with the idea that they had desecrated two graves and begged the coroner to allow them to rebury the bodies Apparently, the corner relented, and Judith, in an effort to make amends, said a prayer over the bodies and then planted a flower garden around them. The Haneys then tracked down Jasper to learn more about the bodies. After seeing the rings, Jasper passed along that the two bodies buried in their backyard were Betty and Charlie Thomas, who were among the last to be ra- laid to rest in that cemetery. At this point, all manner of weird things start happening. As I put in my notes, this is where the creepy pasta begins to boil. I personally thought that was very clever, and I had to share. I, I didn't want that to be wasted. So what is constantly reported as the first bit of evidence of a haunting or anything supernatural occurring? is when one of the Haney's bedroom clocks began shooting sparks and started glowing this eerie blue color. The clock, however, was unplugged, so no electricity could be going into it to cause the sparks. Soon thereafter, Sam was forced to work a night shift, which, of course, seems to be a popular cliché trope in the haunting industry. Judith, being alone at night, heard the sliding glass doors to the backyard open and a man's voice say, What you doing? Judith, thinking it was Sam, asked what he was doing home, only to see the doors were tightly locked when she walked into the living room. The next morning, Judith awoke and began to dress, which means she actually went to sleep that night, which means Judith is way more macho than I would have been in that scenario. As she's dressing, she looks for her pair of red shoes and cannot find them. Where they should be is an empty spot. So she, of course, tears apart the house looking for these shoes. When Sam gets home from work, he joins in the hunt for the shoes, but he also can't find them. So where did the shoes go? Well, it wasn't until later that day when Sam was in the backyard that he noticed that these shoes were, where else on top of one of the graves. Even more spooky. Sam learned that that very day was Betty Thomas' birthday. So now while we could look at this as a glass half-empty type of thing and focus on the spookiness of the event, let's give a shout-out to Charles here, who was obviously a good and loving husband, not even allowing death to stop him from getting his woman a gift for her birthday. That's a good husband right there. Now, the Haney's were not the only family to begin suffering from a case of the creeps. Ben and Jean Williams, who were actually the first family to move into Section 8 of this neighborhood, ended up writing a book about their experiences entitled Black Hope Horror. Every plant or flower Jean would try to grow would die, no matter how much effort she put into keeping them alive. They were plagued with sinkholes in their backyard, but not your stereotypical average roundish, ovalish sinkholes. No, these were always nearly perfectly rectangular in shape. They would constantly fill them in, only to have them constantly reappear. And many people commented that the holes really looked like they were in the shape of a coffin. The Williams started seeing shadow people throughout their home. The toilet would flush on its own. Doors would open and close at random. The TV would turn on at odd hours. Family members and guests at the house would suddenly become mentally or physically ill. Disembodied footsteps and voices were heard in random parts of the house. And the house would fill from time to time with a horrible, rancid stench with no obvious source. The Williams noticed in their backyard an old tree, and this tree had odd markings on it, including an arrow, which appeared to be pointing towards the ground, and two large horizontal slashes near the trunk, or the bottom of the tree. They soon thereafter learned that these markings indicated that two children were, bor- were buried at the base of the tree. And there are some who say this tree marked the center of the Black Hope Cemetery. Ben described what he said was his worst night in the house when he came home late from work one day after his wife was in bed and opened the refrigerator to get something to eat. As he did, he turned and looked and saw two ghostly figures standing in the kitchen. Upon being noticed, these figures moved backwards into the den and down the hall towards the master bedroom where Jean was sleeping. Ben gave chase, and when he arrived, the figures were standing at the foot of the bed. He dove at them in an effort to protect his wife, but they disappeared. Ben, however, was left with what he described as a sticky, cold feeling throughout his body. I know what cold feels like. I don't know what a sticky cold feels like. But that sounds, that just makes it sound so much more horrible. A second Williams family, Robert and Madeline, and from what I can tell, no relation, also resided in the Newport subdivision. They experienced many of the same things we've discussed. But Madeline also reported seeing a small figure that would stand outside her kitchen window, about four feet tall. When she would run outside and attempt to confront the person, she found no one near her home. She also reported that her son's toys would turn on by themselves late at night. The constant harassment they suffered in their house put such a great strain on them that they no longer could live in the house and ended up having to sleep separately for a while, which ultimately led to the dissolution of their marriage. They also were unable to sell the house because of the reputation the neighborhood had obtained in the local area. Virtually all the neighbors within Section 8 of this neighborhood reported similar incidents. One reported a streetlight that would respond to their very young granddaughter's questions. Whenever she would ask a question, it would short out as if in response. Even in the heat of the Texas summer, many houses were left freezing cold, Lights were constantly reported floating in houses and around houses and between houses. All in Section 8 reported a f- constant feeling of dread. Sadly, many families also experienced death. The Haney's lost all their family pets under very odd circumstances. Within months of the graves being disturbed, Ben and Jean Williams had six family members diagnosed with cancer, and three of them ultimately succumbed to the disease. The Haney family was the first to try to sue the developers for not disclosing the existence of the cemetery. Their case went to trial, and the jury awarded them over $140,000 in damages for mental anguish. However, the trial court overruled the jury and entered a judgment as a matter of law in favor of the developer, And actually ordered the Haney's to pay the developer $50,000 in attorney's fees and costs. This resulted in the Haney's having to file bankruptcy and losing the house of their dreams or now nightmares. On that point, just because I'm a lawyer and I can't let these little bits of law go, that's odd for a judge to allow a case to go to a jury, allow the jury to reach a decision, and then overrule the jury's decision. Judges do have the authority to say at the close of evidence that, look, you haven't proven your case as a matter of law, and I have to enter a judgment for the defendants. I don't know why this judge allowed it to go to a jury, a judgment being reached, and then him say, nope, don't like that judgment, don't believe it conforms with the evidence, so I'm going to vacate it, enter a judgment for the defendants as a matter of law, and, oh, by the way, you have to pay $50,000 in attorney's fees. That's, that part's especially unusual because judges typically only do that whenever they believe a uh, frivolous lawsuit has been brought. But clearly here, this appears to be a viable lawsuit since a jury bought it, the story, and awarded $140,000 in damages. It's just odd all the way around how that was handled. But there I am, letting the law interrupt a good old ghost story, huh? Okay, after seeing this bad result for the Haney's, Ben and Jean Williams' attorney told them they needed to build up their case more before they filed suit. And he wanted definitive proof that there were bodies buried on their land. So they started digging. and Gene would try to dig a little each day while Ben was at work. Soon after she started digging, however, Jean fell ill. Seeing how important this was to her, her adult daughter, Tina, took up the task. But after only 30 minutes of digging, Tina, too, fell ill. Tina actually had to lie down on the couch and was just persistently complaining that something didn't feel right. Soon her eyes started to glaze over and it was as if she couldn't focus. And she began screaming that something was wrong, something was wrong. In fact, her final words, which were uttered in pure terror, were, Mommy, take care of my baby. Take care of my baby. When paramedics arrived, Tina was quickly taken to a hospital where it was determined that she had suffered a massive heart attack. She died two days later without ever waking up. She was only 31 years old. Ben and Jean dropped everything and moved to Montana. Eventually, they moved back to Texas, albeit in another neighborhood, and have dealt with no further mysterious events. So, what about today? We have these horror stories from the 80s uh, that sound like was affecting everyone within this part of the neighborhood. Have these hauntings continued? Well, by and large, no. Current residents of Newport don't really report anything odd going on. Yet there are a few incidents that surface from time to time. Residents of Ben and Jean Williams' former house have reported hearing a cougar-like animal outside their windows, but have never seen anything. A neighbor down the street has reported that dorms will sometimes slam mysteriously. Another child in this area has reported seeing a brown man in her room, and also complained about black orbs bouncing across her room. The child's grandmother once heard the breathing of a very large man behind her in the bathroom and has never used that bathroom since. Yet another neighbor reported having his slippers ripped out of his hands and seeing the family dog hovering in the living room momentarily. That man's mother also had an experience where she complained that a dark woman visited her at night and she would have problems sleeping when she visited because she would, sh- she would hear the sounds of children playing as she tried to sleep. So my thoughts on this. First, it strikes me that it would be virtually impossible for development to be put together, foundations dug, utility lines ran, all that mess without stumbling across some skeletons. I tried to find more about this litigation that the Haneys were involved in. And the Texas Supreme Court issued an opinion, which by and large isn't helpful because it talks about a bunch of procedural junk, but it did get into these facts about the graveyard during development. And it seemed undisputed that the field supervisor who is in charge of cleaning up the land and getting it ready for all the development was told that there was a graveyard there. And he ignored those warnings. He instructed the workers to take a tractor and haul away all the debris from the area. The supervisor claimed during his testimony that he didn't know if the claims of the cemetery were real, if it was just a pet cemetery, or what. So rather than do anything logical, like, you know, see if there's some bones there, he just said, dig up all that crap, throw it in the dump. I feel very comfortable, therefore saying that we can take as fact that the developer built these houses on a graveyard. And I think that is an important fact because if there are any menacing spirits about, you would think they would attack the folks who are tearing up their beds, building houses, pouring concrete, but we don't have any stories about electricians or plumbers being attacked. I also think it's noteworthy in evaluating this case to highlight the fact that there's no shared experiences here. It's not like a ghost terrorized a room full of people. All of these experiences took place on an individual level. And none of these experiences occurred until after the Haney's learned of the graveyard. Judith was extremely upset by this discovery. She took on a lot of guilt as evidenced by her demanding the bodies be reburied, her praying over the graves, her planting the flowers around, all those actions. She was also the first to report an experience. So is it not possible that her guilt colored her perceptions? Once she began having her experiences, she no doubt told her husband, who then also began having experiences of his own They start sharing stories with the neighbors. The neighbors start having experiences. I think we can all agree that it would be exceptionally upsetting to find skeletons buried in your backyard. And there's definitely a segment of the population that would be totally wigged out by this discovery. I also find it interesting that the hauntings died down after a period of time. People still report occurrences, but there's far fewer of them. And we don't know if these people are aware of the reputation of this community or not. But to go from this mass haunting situation that we're being told about in the early 80s to now hearing of just an experience every now and then, it it doesn't hold a lot of water with me. To me, the most compelling fact that we can take into our analysis is what happened in 1982. A movie was released, a very famous horror movie. The movie was Poltergeist, and it's the story of a family fighting off angry spirits who seek revenge for having a house built on top of their burial site. Exactly the situation we have here. So you can't tell me that plot line is not in the public's consciousness while this is going on. Because of all these factors, I think this haunting is just a story. I think it's people imagining things and overreacting to things. Uh, There are the stories of the people getting sick and getting cancer and whatnot. Yes, that's unusual. Certainly is. And it's very sad but there's no evidence to say a ghost did it. Likewise, every experience, I think, has some sort of logical explanation to it. I'm not going to sit here and go through every story we told, but I I don't think it's much of a challenge to say that, for instance, Judith, hearing her husband's voice as she's about to take a shower and then finding the doors to be locked, that's, that's not unusual to me. I've certainly heard my kids or my wife running around when they're not here. I think it's just something that we do when we're alone. I can't explain every story because I don't have the facts to every incident that occurred. But regardless, I'm putting a big old sham stamp on top of this one. So that wraps up this week's story. I'd love to hear what you think. Is this neighborhood haunted in your opinion? Am I wrong? Or is this really just a case of shared mass hysteria fueled by the incredible acting of Craig T. Nelson? Email me at info at kmhpodcast.com to share your thoughts. I always enjoy getting feedback from y'all. Palette cleanser time. Again, for my seven-year-old and his infinite comedic genius. What does Winnie the Pooh call his girlfriend? There's only one obvious answer to this. Winnie the Pooh calls his girlfriend honey all right thank you all so much for listening i genuinely appreciate each and every one of y'all being here and taking the time to devour what i put out it's it's very flattering if you're enjoying this podcast as always please take a moment to leave us some ratings five star ratings are how we rise through the muck and mire reviews and subscriptions also help us get noticed And an independent podcast like mine can't compete with these giant corporate-backed productions that are all over iTunes and other media players. And frankly, you know, this is something I do, for the love of it, out of my own pocket that I plan to never, ever, ever charge for. I'm not going to have a Patreon account or any of that nonsense. Um, So when I do get some kind words from y'all or feedback or just see another subscription... It really, it's it's it really is motivating to me. So thank y'all for that. Okay, well that's it for this this week. I'm getting mushy. I'll shut up now. I'll be back with a new tale of woe next Tuesday. Until then, peace out, all you rainbow trouts. Thank you for listening to Kellen, missing, hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.